Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine, and on today's show, stories about young migrants from Central America adapting to a new life here in the Golden State. We'll meet a teenager who'd almost finished high school when she came from Honduras. When she got to Oakland, she had to start all over again. Nineteen or twenty in high school, she says? No way! We'll visit the school that kept her from dropping out. Plus, another group of teens who designed and wrote 300 postcards to kids in immigration custody. To say, you know, not everyone in this country wants you gone. There are people here who care for you and appreciate you. And a Californian who was once an immigrant kid uprooted from England reflects on the struggles of migrant kids today. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. We're going to start with a story about a 15-year-old named Vladimir, whose mom came to the U.S. from El Salvador two years ago. She faced death threats there and applied for asylum here in the U.S. while her son stayed behind with his grandmother. His mom's been living in Contra Costa County with a married couple who sponsored her and opened up their home to her. We first brought you her story a couple of months ago. Back then, she said she was worried about Vladimir because he and his grandmother were making the long journey to the U.S. border. Me preocupa y me duele el hecho de, la, de ese camino tan difícil. Que han, están sufriendo mucho, están caminando mucho. KQED immigration reporter Farida Javala Romero met Vladimir at a youth shelter in Tijuana last fall. He just arrived as part of a big migrant caravan. And Vladimir didn't know if he'd be able to cross the border and reunite with his mom. But as Farida tells us now, after months of hardship and anxiety, the two are finally back together. Veronica Aguilar pushes a supermarket cart at a discount grocery store in the city of Penol. She grabs a bag of beans from the shelf and turns to her son, Vladimir who trails closely behind. Not too long ago, something as routine as a grocery trip together seemed like a dream for Veronica and her son. They were separated for more than a year by international borders. Veronica was the first in her family to flee violence in El Salvador. Then last year, Vladimir also ran away from gang members with guns drawn at his doorstep. Now that he's with her, she says she's so happy that she can take care of him. Vladimir 
For Vladimir, this place is brand new. His first two months in the U.S. were spent at a government-run shelter in Florida. He was just released a month ago and flown to California. But he says being here with his mom feels bittersweet because he misses his grandmother Lucy, who made the journey to Tijuana with him, walking and catching rides when they could. Lucy is like a mother to him, but after dropping him off safely in Tijuana, Lucy had to return to El Salvador to care for her other grandkids. And just like that, Vladimir found himself alone at a contentious time in that city. Vladimir was part of a wave of thousands of Central American migrants who arrived in Tijuana last November and waited for their turn to ask U.S. officials for asylum. But that's when Vladimir met two American women who would make his journey to California possible. At a youth shelter where he was staying, he met a pro bono lawyer who said she could help him. A few days later, they jumped in a cab to a nearby border crossing. The lawyer pleaded with a U.S. Customs and Border Protection supervisor there to process Vladimir for asylum. Lindsay Toflowski directs the Immigrant Defenders Law Center in Los Angeles. She says the supervisor kept telling them their facilities were at capacity. And, you know, telling us that we needed to vacate the premises and that, you know, we would get in trouble if we continued to loiter there. But then Lindsay says Vladimir had a stroke of luck. Another woman who'd been standing there walked up and asked the supervisor what he meant by at capacity. And the CBP supervisor said, ma'am, you need to step back. Um, you know, I don't need to answer that question. You need to back up. And she said, no, I am a member of Congress. And in fact, you do need to answer that question because we fund your agency. Turns out that was Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal from Seattle, who was on a tour of the border to speak with migrants. After more back and forth, the CBP supervisor relented and accepted Vladimir for processing. Lindsay gave Vladimir a hug and said goodbye. At home in Pinole, Veronica and Vladimir put away their groceries. Looking back at this last year she was separated from her son, Verica says she's thankful to the people who helped him cross and pushed for his right to seek asylum. Entonces yo estoy agradecida porque hubo alguien que ayudó a mi hijo para que pudieran respetar sus derechos. Vladimir is shy, and like most teenagers, he spends a lot of time on his phone. That's how he keeps in touch with the kids he met at the government-run shelter in Florida. Ahí donde estuve en el albergue ese, ahí me topé un montón de con chavos y pues nos hicimos amigos y así. But he doesn't want to say anything else about the two months he spent there. But his mom, Veronica, says when she would talk to him on the phone, he was depressed. Now she still sees a pain inside him. She says he's young and she doesn't want him to live with that his whole life. She wants to find a psychologist he can talk to. Vladimir is also a little nervous about his new high school in Penol. He only speaks Spanish, and all his classes are in English. Sí, a ver qué pasa. Through it all, Veronica has been amazed by the generosity of strangers. She says, the married couple who opened up their home to her months ago and who've now taken in Vladimir have supported her like family. Somos una familia que me han ayudado, me han apoyado. 
On the day I visit, Veronica gets an unexpected present in the mail. It's a $100 gift card from a professor in Southern California who heard about them. There's also a note. The professor says she's also an immigrant who came here looking for a better life. She tells them everything is possible. Good luck. Veronica puts the note back in the envelope. And she looks up at her son. She says it's motivation to keep fighting. For the California Report, I'm Farida Javala Romero in Penol. When teenagers flee their home countries to come here to California, their education can sometimes get interrupted. That's what happened to a young woman from Honduras who we're going to meet now. Her name is Yamileth, and when she left Central America, she was a senior in high school. When she got here to California, she had to start high school all over again. Zadie Staveley tells us about a special school in Oakland that's trying to keep newcomers, especially older teenagers, from dropping out. Jamilet is tiny, but tough. On her gymnastics team in Honduras, she was the one on the top of the pyramid. She's so small. She fled when she was 17, after gang members targeted her family. They tried to get her mother to pay them a portion of the revenue from her clothing business. When her mother refused, they went after Yamilet, physically attacking her. She asked to use only her middle name because she's still afraid of them. She says she still has nightmares about everything she's gone through. On the journey north in Mexico, she, her mother, and her little brother were kidnapped. Yamilet led their escape. One day, when the kidnappers had gone out to collect ransom money, she discovered the door was unlocked. She told her mom and her brother to run as fast and as far as they could. She waited behind. Once she was sure no one was coming after them, she ran to join them. The family made their way to the border and asked for asylum. They settled in Oakland to wait for their day in court. They found an apartment, and Yamilet enrolled in school. She says since she didn't speak English and she had no school records with her, the district enrolled her in ninth grade. School was hard, and then another student started bullying her. She called Yamilet enana, or dwarf, pulled her hair, and beat her up. Soon, Yamilet stopped going to class. She would cry, she says, and tell her mom, I don't want to go back there. She transferred to another school. But the challenges didn't end. Teenage immigrant students like Yamilet only have a few years to learn English and get up to speed with the curriculum here. That's because under state law, you can't be 21 and enroll in high school. After two years in school here, Yamilet was still behind. I was already 19, almost 20, she says. And I thought, no, I'm going to be 21 and still in high school. The number of new immigrant students like Yamilet who attend Oakland high schools more than doubled from 2014 to 2018. But district leaders know that a lot of these students drop out. You know, we know that this is an extreme challenge. That's Emma Batten-Bowman. 
She's an assistant principal at Rudsdale Newcomer High School in Oakland. We're trying to get a high school diploma equivalent to students who are new to the country, maybe don't even have academic skills in their home language. Tons of trauma. Uh, They're working full time. We have a terrible attendance. And this school is designed to address those challenges. Like other continuation schools, it requires fewer credits to graduate and has a flexible schedule. But Rudsdale Newcomer is just for new immigrant students. Even though students can't enroll here if they're 21, it removes some of the other barriers that made students drop out at other schools. Half. Good. Enough. Good, you got it. Even in algebra, students practice their English by sharing their equations out loud. My equation is S, X, minus uh, 12, <laughs> equal. Yamilet was one of the first students to enroll at Rudsdale. It was her third high school since she came here from Honduras. She loved it. She says she felt more confident. Porque todos estamos aprendiendo. Porque no sabemos perfectamente el inglés. We were all learning English, Yamilet says. So I knew there was no one who knew more than I did. Classes at Rudsdale are small. Sometimes only five or six students. They don't have homework. And they start an hour later and end an hour earlier than other schools. That helped Yamilet, who was working as a dishwasher. She says she would get off work late and often not get home until midnight. Sometimes she says she missed four school days in a row. But then she would go in early to make up work. Batten Bowman says Rudsdale's teachers and staff are all about being flexible. We're constantly talking to the students about, let us know. You know, if your schedule changes, let us know. Like, we can put you on independent study for a short time. Don't just drop off the face of the earth. The school also offers internships. Some students shadow doctors and x-ray techs at a local hospital. Jamilet took a dog care elective and helped rehabilitate abused pit bulls. Jamilet says after taking that class, She's thinking maybe she'll become a veterinarian. But she also wants to open her own beauty parlor. Or maybe a restaurant. That's why she says she stayed in school. She says, since God gave me the opportunity to be here, I have to make the most of that. Most of all for my mom, for my mom's future, and for mine. She says she has so many options for the future, now that she's graduated. That's right. Last June, Yamilet was one of the first to graduate from Rudsdale Newcomer High School. She wore a white cap and gown. Her mom and little brother came to cheer her on. That month was huge for her. A few days after graduation, she turned 21. And one more thing. In junio, gracias a Dios, este, ganamos el asilo. Los cuatro. Mi papá, mi mamá, mi hermano y yo. After three years of fighting in court, she and her family won asylum. Yamilet, her mom, her brother, and her dad, who immigrated after them. They can't be deported back to Honduras. And this year, they can apply for permanent residency. For the California Report, I'm Zadie Stavely in Oakland. Zadie's story was produced in collaboration with EdSource and with the support of the Education Writers Association. And now we're going to head to a different high school. This one's in Fremont, north of San Jose. A group of teenagers at Washington High are really concerned about young immigrant asylum seekers their own age. They've collected 300 postcards 
and they plan to send them to help cheer up kids held in government-run immigration shelters. We're going to hear from two students who wrote postcards, but we start off with 16-year-old Karina Silvestro, who designed them. I was trying to think of, you know, if I were in that position and if maybe I didn't have people around me that I was familiar with and it was a very, you know, scary, intense situation, I was thinking, you know, maybe what's something that I would like to receive or like something I could keep close to me, something that could give you security. I just took a few pictures of a classmate and I holding hands to use that symbolism of hands for as unity. I added a few phrases in Spanish I felt like would be appropriate. One of them says, Ustedes bienvenido aquí, which means you're welcome here. And another one says, Estoy contigo, which means I am with you. Maybe as to say, you know, not everyone in this country wants you gone. There are people here who, you know, care for you and appreciate you. Just to give them like a, like hope, like you know, like, oh maybe I can get out and maybe join a club one day, you know, or be in school, or make some friends, like you know, just to like remind them that this isn't the whole world, like you know, like this little cage isn't everything. So I just want to tell them like a little bit about my life and my story and how I feel about it, to maybe give them a little hope, like oh not to give up. It's in Spanish. I wrote, Hola, yo sé que ahorita las cosas no se ven bien, pero no se preocupen. Todo pasa por algo y siempre viene algo bueno después de lo malo. And I think they're really brave and strong to like be there by themselves and keep going. And they, all they gotta know is that when something bad happens, something's good gonna come out of it. Sometimes I complain about my life and it's like they have it harder. That was 15-year-old Hetza Jimenez, 16-year-old Kenneth Alvarado, and 16-year-old Karina Silvestro from Washington High School in Fremont. They were sharing the postcards they're sending to young people held in U.S. immigration custody. They were interviewed by Farida Javala Romero. You're listening to the California Report magazine. And on this week's show, we're telling stories of young immigrants from Central America who've made their way here to California. One of our immigration reporters, Julie Small, has spent a lot of time tracking these kinds of stories and the policies and legal decisions that are affecting young migrants. Hey there, Julie. Hey, Sasha. So can you help us put in context some of the stories we've been hearing on this week's show? We've heard about two teenagers from Central America. They both made it to California and they're living with their parents. But that's not typical. No, it's actually getting harder for kids coming alone. Like Vladimir, as we heard, you know, it took a congresswoman to get him across. Typically, people are being turned back or getting detained. And Yamalet, the girl from Honduras who came with her mother and brother back in 2015, well, things are very different now. It used to be that people were let out on bond or their own recognizance pretty quickly. But one of President Trump's big shifts was to order mandatory detention for asylum seekers. And then we know about the controversial policy of separating families, which even though a judge ordered the administration to stop doing that last June, uh, we found out that the government has separated another 245 kids from their parents since then. And then we learned this year that the Trump administration started separating families all the way back in 2017, way earlier than we thought. 
And there's a new ruling out, right, from a judge in San Diego that could expand how much responsibility the government has for accounting for those kids. Right. I mean, there may be thousands of kids who were separated from parents that we didn't know about before. And the judge says, now that we do, the government has an obligation to identify them first, and then we can figure out what to do for them. And the government has pushed back hard, saying it's going to be very costly and time-consuming. But ACLU attorney Lee Gallant, who represents the family, says, you know, it's a burden that the government has to bear. The truth is, they separated these families illegally, deliberately, and now they're saying we've already done enough. You know, we, we pitched in and helped, and now we don't want to do any more. Julie, tell us what you've been seeing in your reporting when it comes to the conditions in detention inside facilities where kids and families are held. I want to play you some tape from a woman I met at a bus station in Texas. She had just come out of Border Patrol custody. She's from Guatemala. She says the guards did not let her or her kids sleep. She said it was freezing inside the hilera. It was just a windowless room that they keep really cold. Families in there, sometimes they are wet from crossing the river. She also talked about what she called dog cages. These are big metal cages on the floor. Uh, they keep them locked in there. They were woken up multiple times in the night for head counts, and then the kids had to wake up too. She says they would use a device, the officers, uh, like a trash grabber, to pinch people awake. And I've also heard reports from other parents that they were yelled at or that uh, the guards yanked on their feet. And I've seen this repeated in affidavits in a federal lawsuit and in a new report by an independent monitor that just came out about standards for treating migrants. And those so-called dog cages were a focal point this week when Representative Bonnie Watson Coleman of New Jersey grilled Kirsten Nielsen, the Secretary of Homeland Security. Is that a cage? It's a detention space, ma'am, that you know has existed for decades. Does it differ from the cages you put your dogs in? When you let them stay outside, is it, a, is it different? It, it, yes. In what sense? Uh, it's larger. It has facilities. Uh, it provides room to sit, to stand, to lay down. So and did my dog's cage. And I heard an allegation that I thought was particularly disturbing, that inside Border Patrol, they take children as young as eight and put them in a separate cage from their parents and won't even let them make eye contact. You know, conditions are reportedly really bad in some of these facilities. And we've also heard about widespread sexual abuse at shelters for unaccompanied children, including at facilities here in California, in Fairfield and in Yolo County. Senator Dianne Feinstein is calling for an investigation. Julie, thank you so much. Thank you. Julie Small is KQED's criminal justice and immigration reporter. You're listening to the California Report magazine. On this week's show, we're bringing you stories about young migrants who fled their homes in Central America and how they're adapting to life here in California. Listener Nicola Pitchford also immigrated to California as a child, but from England. Her experience was drastically different from the young asylum seekers we've introduced you to today. But Nicola empathizes with the challenges that come with settling in a new place, especially when a parent is left behind. Nicola wrote to her father 
as part of our series, Letter to My California Dreamer, where we've been asking you to write a letter to one of the first people in your family who came to California with a dream. My dear father, I understand now your thing about the California desert. Southern California was the perfect place for you to start again as a newly single father in the late 1970s. England was a gray and hopeless place, all public sector strikes and drab school uniforms. LA, by contrast, was a dream of swimming pools, divorcees, and continual redemption with hallelujah bumper stickers everywhere. On weekends, you'd drag us out to camp in the Mojave. You loved the open skies, the shimmering heat, the scruffy towns. I loathed this freakish moonscape, devoid of soft greenery and proper trees. Things I couldn't name bit me or gave me hives. I got sunburned to spite you and sulked for my mother. I'm sure it reminded you of the Libyan Sahara, where you'd worked as a young engineer on water delivery projects. There's a line in Lawrence of Arabia about that strange kind of Englishman who loves deserts because he's a misfit in his own green, fat country. Making me an immigrant, you made me a misfit too. I'm a privileged one. I speak my native language, more or less. I've never lacked a safe place or been treated with suspicion for my origins or my color. But I still have that subtle gap, the alien uncertainty that makes me listen for things that go unnamed, things named differently in other tongues. I'm part of the global tribe that doesn't take home for granted. I lean toward those on the edges. And so I feel called by kinship to the migrant families now living a nightmare in the deserts of the Southwest. I know you shared their simple urge, the urge of good parents anywhere, to seek a better life for their children. I made that hard for you. All those mornings I sat crying over breakfast, homesick for the green hills of my motherland and heartsick for the mother who was somewhere among them. What does it do to a parent to see their child so unhappy and be helpless? Did you second-guess your choices? I don't need to ask what it does to a child to be both uprooted from home and separated from a parent, even as gently as it happened to me. I can offer no comfort to the parents and children torn from one another under the blazing borderland sky. When you looked at the beauty of deserts, you too saw the nomads and migrants, the displaced and the dispossessed. Your own sense of kinship took you back in your last years to Africa's driest places, to work alongside them in bringing clean water. I adore the desert now. I'm still learning its language, its words, the natural history of its resilient plants and creatures. I married another immigrant, desert lover. I fell for him when I was working in rainy London, and he sent photos from Joshua Tree and Death Valley, so I'd have a dream of blue sky to pin on my wall. A California dream. You would have appreciated that. Your loving daughter, Nicola. 
Nicola Pitchford's letter to her father. We'd love to hear your letter to your family's original California dreamer. We've got an easy form on our website where you can tell us your story, californiareport.org. And that's the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller. And we had additional engineering this week from Rob Spate. Victoria Mauleon is our senior editor. Asala Sanapur is our intern. And the California Report's editorial team also includes Erica Kelly, David Marks, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation. Accepting nominations now for the 2020 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvine.org. College Futures Foundation, more graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org and Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Adelfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.